You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so we are in the third week now of Easter. Because as you remember from last week, Easter's not one day. Easter's a season. We call it Eastertide. So we're in the third week of this seven-week season on the Christian calendar called Eastertide. And so what we're doing this Easter season is I am preaching a special series called Practicing Resurrection. We are talking about those spiritual practices that the Holy Spirit uses to mold and shape us as people of God uh, being formed in Christ-like character. As children of the resurrection, we belong to the age to come. We don't belong to this present age. We belong to the age to come. So more and more, the Holy Spirit wants to form us into people who reflect the age to come. Our lives, our choices, our relationships, uh, the way we steward our money and time and relationships, everything. We want it to be a reflection of what's to come when everything is made right. So that in that way, we are a preview to the world of what's to come. And it gives them, uh, it whets their appetite, we might say. So that's kind of the concept behind this series. So there, there are these particular practices that Christians, and even before then, Jewish people engaged in. And the Christians adopted these practices as well. And it is our belief that through these practices, like prayer and scripture and worship and on and on it goes, the Holy Spirit gives us grace and it transforms our lives over time. So that's what we're talking about. Each week of this series, I'm talking about a different spiritual discipline, spiritual practice. Uh, you know, there's more beyond what we're going to focus on in this series, but I just selected six in particular that we're going to focus on. So last week we talked about the practice of prayer. It was a very simple, very practical sermon, and I hope it was of help to you. Today, we're going to talk about the role of Scripture informing and shaping us as Christ-like people. Uh, and again, it's going to be a very simple, very practical sermon, just like last week. Most of my sermons are very impractical. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your courtesy laugh. But, but this is going to be one of those practical sermons that I think, I think everybody here, this, this should make complete sense to you, hopefully. So we're going to talk about Scripture, and of course, when we talk about Scripture as Christians, we're talking about the Bible. What I want to do for the first five minutes is I want to say a little bit about how the Bible came to be. And then we're going to get into what I really want to drill down on, which is what is the role of the Bible in our formation as Christians. But just indulge me for a few minutes. I want to talk a little bit, just give you a little taste of how the Bible came to be. The word Bible means book. And the Bible is divided into two main sections. We have the first section, which is the Hebrew Scriptures or the Jewish Scriptures. As Christians, we often call it uh, the Old Testament. But if you're ever in a conversation with Jewish people, it's a good practice to just refer to it as the Hebrew Scriptures because that's, that is their Scriptures. Um, so we have the Bible divided into two sections. The Old Testament, since I'm, since I'm among Christians today, I'll call it the Old Testament. And uh, it's, it's made up of 39 books. And then the second section, the Christian scriptures, the New Testament made up of 27 books. Now, as Christians, we accept the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, 
into our canon. That word canon means uh, rule or standard or list. And we accept the Old Testament into our canon of Scripture. It is uh, an inspired holy Scripture. And one of the reasons why the Old Testament is important to us, probably the primary reason, in fact, I'm not even going to say probably, definitely the primary reason why the Old Testament is important to us is because it gives us the story that leads us to Jesus. It gives us the story of how the world's gone wrong and how God sets his plan into motion to set things right. And he reveals himself to a chosen people through whom he's going to reach the world. And so the Old Testament gives us the history of God's interaction with these chosen people. But it doesn't reach its culminating point until we get into the New Testament and we meet Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So without the New Testament, the Old Testament is a story without an ending. It's a story that's pointing forward, but it doesn't quite get us there. We don't get there until we get into the New Testament and we encounter Jesus Christ. However, by that same token, as New Testament Christians, the Old Testament is indispensable to us. Because once again, it gives us a story that leads us to Jesus. And without the Old Testament... We don't really properly understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are inextricably linked, and together it is our canon of holy inspired scripture. God breathed. Can I say, can I hear an amen? amen. All right. So um, now the Old Testament, made up of 39 books, these 39 books came into its final solidified form around the year 150 BC. I don't really want to say a whole lot about that doesn't really concern us for our purposes today. But I do want to say a little bit about how the New Testament came to be. These 27 books. You might have wondered in your life, why do we have 27 books in the New Testament? Why not 25 or 30 or 35? Why, why is it that some writings were accepted as inspired scripture in the New Testament canon, but other writings were excluded? Why is that the case? That I do think you ought to know just a little bit about. Well, the New Testament, the 27 books, which is made up of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts of the Apostles, which is uh, Luke's history of the earliest phase of the church. Uh, we have the 21 apostolic letters. And then that mysterious book at the end called the book of Revelation, which is kind of a book that defies categories. The book of Revelation is in a, is in a category all to itself. It refuses to be categorized. These 27 books, and this is important, all 27 of them were written before the end of the first century by that first generation of apostolic witness. Why is that important? Because the Gnostic Gospels, you know, the so-called, maybe you've heard of some of these, the so-called Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Barnabas, Gospel of Thomas, which, by the way, have nothing to do with those original figures. Those books were, were written much, much later in the second century and most of them in the latter half of the second century. And one of the reasons why the early church did not accept those gospels into the New Testament canon, one of the reasons is because they were written at such a later date. The early church only accepted those writings that were produced in the first century by that first generation of apostles. Everybody with me so far? Okay, now the first writings in the New Testament to be written were Paul's letters. 
Paul's letters were written before any of the four Gospels. They're the first letters to be written, uh, almost all of them in the 50s, early, very early 60s, if not all in the 50s. And Paul's letters were accepted as authoritative very early on, almost immediately, in fact. What would happen is Paul would write these letters or he would dictate it, and then they would send them off to one of these local churches, one of these congregations out there in Asia Minor or something. And these churches would receive the letters. They would treat, handle them very carefully. They would copy them, and they would circulate amongst the early churches. And what they would do is they would actually, in their public worship gatherings, they would take Paul's letter and they would read from it as part of their public worship service. So that ultimately, what becomes the New Testament are the Gospels and the letters that were read as part of the worship of, uh, of these churches. Long before these books were ever formalized as the New Testament, they were already in public use in these worship gatherings and regarded as inspired Holy Scripture. All right? So in these, of these 27 books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the letters of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, each of those books were accepted as inspired scripture very early on, almost immediately. And then later on, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, later on, those were also gaining uh, general acceptance, universal acceptance as inspired scripture in the early church. And then the book of Revelation came in last. You know, people were scratching their heads almost immediately uh, with the book of Revelation. But eventually the book of Revelation was also uh, regarded as Holy Scripture alongside of these others. And so by the end of the second century, these books that would later become formally the New Testament, they had already informally been in public use in their worship gatherings as Holy Scripture. Much later on, they were formalized. But these were the 27 writings that were already in public use as Scripture. If you've ever heard somebody say that, you know, the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, that, that these were also being used by the churches, and then later on, these church hierarchy guys came and said, no, you got to stop using those. Those are no longer going to be regarded as Scripture. That's simply not the case. What happened was that the writings that became accepted in the New Testament canon much later on, they were the ones that, in fact, the church had been using for generations. And the reason they were using them is because they were produced in the first century by that first generation of apostles. Now, in a formal way, in the year 367, much later, Athanasius, the uh, bishop of the church in Alexandria, in his Christmas letter, he gave a formal list of the New Testament books. Now, again, they were already in practice long before that, but he formalized it and said, all right, these will be the 27 books of the New Testament. And that was done by Athanasius in 367. So that's a little bit of how the New Testament came to be. If you're interested, by the way, in delving a little deeper into this topic, there's a great book by F.F. F. Bruce called The Canon of Scripture. One, one in in the word canon. The Canon of Scripture. It's very readable. I recommend it to you. It's a great resource. All right. I got more to go. So what is the role of Scripture in our formation as followers of Jesus? That's really what I want to talk about this morning with you. What is the role of formation? And I want to begin uh, just by looking at this verse. Our main text we'll look at in just a moment. But I want us to look once again at the Gospel of John chapter 5. Verse 39, Jesus here is in conversation with 
a group of Pharisees. And look at what he says. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say to you right now, because every time I make points like this, I always risk being misunderstood. And I've just decided I'm willing to take that risk because this is so important. Listen, Jesus loved the scriptures. Jesus believed the scriptures. Jesus read the scriptures. Jesus memorized and quoted the scriptures. Jesus taught the scriptures. And for him, that would have been what we call the Old Testament. But Jesus also understood that the Bible is not an end unto itself. In other words, the Bible doesn't save us. We're not saved by the Bible. And there's no salvation in the Bible, the book itself. What the Bible does, if we let it do what it wants to do, is it points us to Jesus, who is Savior. And that's why we call our faith Christianity, not Bibleanity. It's Christianity. Now, Ryan, why do you make such a big deal of this all of the time? Why are, you, why, do you, why are you always harping on this? Because this is precisely the mistake that the Pharisees were making. They made a religion out of a book that they could use, that they could control, that they could manipulate, that they could nuance and interpret according to their own pre-existing perspectives that they assumed God, of course, shares our perspective. And all of the while, they think that they're serving God. But when God in human flesh stared them in the eyes, they, they couldn't recognize him. So at the center of our faith, and I hope you can get this, I hope this is a, for some of you, maybe this is a big step. It shouldn't be. But I hope you can come to a point where you realize the center and foundation of our faith is the living person named Jesus Christ. The supreme value of the Bible is that it reveals Jesus to me where I find salvation and where I find life. That's an important distinction for us to make. So the Bible is the sacred, inspired revelation of Jesus. I therefore don't read it like an encyclopedia. I don't treat it like an almanac. I don't treat it like a law book. I read it as our most trusted guide to revealing Jesus to us. I want to show you an account of how this works in the Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8 with me. This is um, a story involving a guy named Philip. You know, there's a lot of uh, dispute about which Philip this is. Some people say this is Philip the Apostle. Others say it's Philip the Evangelist. Some people say that they're both the same person. I'm not necessarily in that camp. Uh, but regardless, it's a fellow named Philip. All right? It's a guy named Philip, and he's been preaching in Samaria. And let's look at what happens here. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, <clears throat> Get up. And go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So we got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, 
go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. So, so let's look at this story. We have a Christian leader named Philip who has been directed to leave Jerusalem. He's on a desert road going south towards Gaza. And coming up from the opposite direction on the same road is the secretary of the treasury of Ethiopia. That's, what, that's the title we would give him today. He's the secretary of the treasury. So he's a court official. And Luke is very quick to tell us he's also a eunuch, which was the practice of the ancient North African kingdoms. All of their court officials, they would make them to be eunuchs. If you don't know what a eunuch is, Google it later in the privacy of your own home. <laughs> this man is a court official. He's a eunuch. He is also a Gentile a non-Jew, and yet he is someone who the Jewish people would refer to as a God-fearer. He's not a Jew by ethnic descent, and yet somehow or another this Ethiopian eunuch has come to believe upon and worship the God of Israel. And he's actually on his way to Jerusalem to worship. Now, interestingly, the book that he is reading, the Bible, prohibited him from fully entering into worship at Jerusalem. He would not be allowed to step onto the Temple Mount for two reasons, separate reasons. Number one, he's a Gentile. Number two, he's a eunuch. And so this man is doubly prohibited from entering the Temple Mount on, pen on penalty of stoning by death. So he's not allowed to fully engage in worship as, as a Jewish person would there in Jerusalem. But he's on his way to Jerusalem to worship. The best he's going to be able to do is kind of worship from afar. And yet somehow or another, as this man is on his way to Jerusalem, he's obtained a copy of the Scriptures. Maybe the whole Old Testament, but more than likely just a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he happens to uh, be reading from what we call Isaiah 53, which is probably the clearest foretelling of Messiah in all of the Old Testament. And just as he's reading it, Philip happens to be passing by on the opposite direction. And Philip, who, who feels prompted by the Holy Spirit, comes and gets into this guy's chariot. Now, this is something I hope never, ever happens to me where I'm driving down Hollywood Way, I'm at the red light, and somebody jumps into my car and says, God told me to get in your car. <laughs> but... Um, but Philip overhears this man reading from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 
And Philip says, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless someone guide me? Which is a fantastic answer. I need a guide to help me. I can't do this by myself. And Philip, using this scripture that the man happened to be reading, he uses it to point the man to the good news about Jesus. Not just simply the good news about the Bible, because if he had just stuck with the Old Testament, the Bible, well, this man's prohibited from entering into the Temple Mount. I'm sorry, sir, you, you, can't, you can't fully worship God and be accepted by God at the Temple because you're a Gentile eunuch. But instead, Philip uses the Scripture to lead this man to Jesus. Hallelujah. And this man finds salvation, and he's baptized in water on the spot. And furthermore, history tells us and it's probably no coincidence. Did you know that Christianity made its way into Ethiopia very early? And if, in fact, the church still maintains a very strong, active presence there today. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch, he said that he needed a guide to interpreting the Bible. And that is correct, because we all do. You know, the Apostle Peter, later on, he'll write that no prophetic scripture, no scripture is a matter of private interpretation. We need a reliable guide to interpret scripture. And what is our guide to interpreting scripture? Don't, don't answer out loud because I'm afraid you'll get it wrong and you'll get embarrassed. Our guide to interpreting scripture is the church. Now, if you want to get technical, you'll say our guide to interpreting scripture is the Holy Spirit working through the church but you better include the church because if you just say our guide to interpreting scripture is the holy spirit now you're left once again with the individual person in a locked room trying to read and interpret and apply the bible by himself for himself and the apostle peter is very clear that we're not to do that we're going to get off track with that kind of mentality we need the entire witness of the entire church because the holy spirit didn't just give us the scriptures the Holy Spirit also gave us teachers. And that same entity, the church that created the scriptures, is also given to us by the Holy Spirit to guide us in the interpretation of scripture. So that those people whose Christianity consists entirely of themselves in a locked room with the Bible, reading and interpreting and trying to figure out and apply the Bible by themselves, apart from anyone else, they cannot help but go wrong. They always inevitably go wrong because we need a reliable guide. The Holy Spirit didn't just give us the Bible. He gave us the Bible through the church, and we need the church for reliable interpretation. All right? So let me close with this. I'm going to give you three things, three points about, three encouragements, maybe I'll put it that way, three encouragements about how to approach the Bible as those who are being formed in Christ. How do we read the Bible for our own formation. I want to give you three things real quickly, and then, then we're going to actually take a moment and put this into practice together. But first thing, number one, these will be up on the screen for you as well. Number one is to read the Bible to know the story. Read the Bible to know the story. The Bible is one great big story, but it's also made up of hundreds of smaller stories. You know, there's Noah in the ark and Jonah in the whale and Peter walking on water and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and hundreds of other stories. And we need to read the Bible to be familiar and stay familiar with the stories because they all make up the one big grand story. So you need to know something about Abraham 
and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David. You know, all of these stories are very, very, very important because they connect to the big story. And so we need to read the Bible to become familiar with and to keep it fresh. Get the Bible into your system. Keep the Bible fresh in your mind, the story of the Bible. The best way to do this is to learn to read the Bible through. Learn to read the Bible through. Now, you can do this literally reading, or you, in this day and age, you can do it with an audio book, you know, as you're traveling down the, the freeway. Um, but get the Bible into your system. Listen, there's a time to do like hardcore study and pull out your commentary, pull out your concordance and your lexicon, especially if you're a teacher or a preacher. We ought to have times where we really dig deep. But I'm talking about just reading the Bible to just get it in your system. That's very important, just to keep the Bible fresh in your minds. Uh, every morning I'll do this. I'll talk about how I do it in just a moment. But in the mornings, I'll read the story and I'm not trying to dig, I'm not trying to analyze, I'm just trying to read the Bible. I'm just getting it fresh in my mind. I would encourage you, when it comes to reading the Bible for this purpose, use a readable translation. I get asked all the time what I recommend for this purpose. The ones I would recommend to you just to read the Bible, to know the stories, number one, the New Living Translation, very readable. There's a new one actually, uh, I say new, it's, it's been around for about 11, 12 years, called the Common English Bible. Uh, I'm just discovering that and really digging into it, and I really have come to enjoy it. Uh, so use a very readable uh, translation of the Bible. Now, everyone, as you walked in, hopefully you got one of these sheets. Everybody got one of these sheets. If you didn't, we have some extra copies on the back table. I want you to pull this out. Um, and I just want to give you my personal practice. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can approach reading the Bible through. This is the one that I personally use, and it's the one that I find the most helpful. And so I would encourage you uh, to at least take a look at this. So what I do in the mornings is I'll sit down with my Bible, and I'll spend about 15 minutes in the Old Testament, and then I'll spend about 15 minutes in the New Testament. Now, however long you spend, that's up to you. For me, that's what makes sense for my day. So I'll spend 15 minutes in the Old Testament, and I spend 15 minutes in the New Testament. And I want to just explain to you briefly how I do this. So when I'm reading the Old Testament, what I do is I read through the story chronologically, um, which means I bounce around a little bit. But I want to read the story chronologically. And this is one possible way that you can do this. It's a simpler way of doing it. But I feel like it's important as I'm, as, for example, as I'm reading the prophet Isaiah, as I'm reading the prophet Micah, I want to read it in context with the, the grand story of, the, of what the Hebrew Scriptures is giving me. So I read the Bible, uh, read the Old Testament on a cycle, and I just read it chronologically. I get into my system. As I've explained before, I treat the Psalms a little bit differently. That's part of my prayer time. I pray the Psalms. And then I also treat the Proverbs differently. I'll, I'll pray through the book of Proverbs um, in the month of January. But that gives you a little bit of a peek into what I do with the Old Testament. Now, with the New Testament, I read the New Testament according to the Christian calendar. You know, here on, uh, in the Christian calendar, there are numerous seasons. You know, there's the season of Advent, which is four weeks. Then there's the season of Christmas. Remember, Christmas is not one day. It's 12 days. It's on the 12th day of Christmas, I'm ten, uh, Bobby Kilgore. Yeah, here you are. All right. Uh, we don't want you to sing today, though. Don't worry about it. But I always think of Bobby now when I think of the 12 days of Christmas. Um, there's um, the season of Epiphany. 
there's the season of Lent, there's Holy Week, then there's the season of Easter, seven weeks, and then beginning on the day of Pentecost, all the way until the next season of Advent, it's kind of like the off-season. It's, it's ordinary time. Uh, and I will read the New Testament according to the Christian calendar. There's so many benefits I find to doing this, but one of the benefits, one of the reasons I think is important because it keeps me grounded in the Gospels. I'm never far away from the Gospels where we, we see Jesus in his life and his teaching and his miracles and his death and his resurrection. I'm, I'm heavily rooted in the Gospels even as I'm reading everything else. It's not that I'm reading the Gospels exclusively. I'm reading all of the New Testament. I'm reading all of the Old Testament. I usually end up reading through the Bible a couple times a year. But in all of my reading, it's heavily weighted in the Gospels. Why on earth would I do that? Because I'm a Christian. <laughs> and Jesus is the one everything points to. Not only that, but Jesus is to be the lens through which I interpret everything else. So I think it makes a whole lot of sense as a Christian to root and ground my reading in the Gospels as I'm reading everything else. You know, if, if you're reading the book of Leviticus just as much as you're reading the Gospel of John, to me it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm going to read the book of Leviticus a couple times a year, but I'm going to live in the Gospels. I want my imagination to be formed by the Gospels, which helps me interpret everything else. That's the lens through which I read everything. So as you're reading these stories, you know, for example, our passage of the week starting today is, is the, the road to Emmaus. It's a beautiful story in Luke 24, Jesus encountering these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What you ought to do when you read a story like that, just try to fall into the story. Just be in the scenery. And, and use your imagination, use your five senses, and just be immersed in the story. In C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the story begins with uh, Edmund and Lucy, and we have a, a, a picture that we'll show you. Edmund and Lucy are staring into this painting, and they see this Narnian ship sailing on a Narnian sea. And as they're staring into this painting, all of a sudden they fall into the painting. And now they're off on this new adventure in, in Narnia. That's how we ought to read the Bible. Allow yourself to be drawn into the story. Find yourself in the story so that its story begins to be incorporated and tangled up with your story. So, number one, read the Bible to know the story. Number two, read the Bible in search of Jesus. The early church fathers really emphasized this way of reading the Old Testament. Always go into the Old Testament with Jesus as your sponsor. Jesus is your guide. And never go into the Old Testament or any part of Scripture unescorted. Let Jesus be your sponsor. And read through the lens of Jesus and always look for Jesus in the text. So if you're, for example, if you're reading the book of Genesis and you're in the story of Noah's Ark, you know, your mind can all of a sudden start getting troubled with all of these modern questions like, uh, did Noah really have to go and try to find every single one of the million of species of beetle? I'm just going to tell you frankly, you're missing the point if you're asking that kind of question. You're to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, always looking for Jesus. So the question we're asking in, in the story of Noah is not, did Noah literally have to find every kind of beetle? And then there's all of the rest of the million of different insects and different species of all of those different insects. And on and on it goes. No, the question we're to ask is, in what way is the story of Noah like the salvation I find in Jesus? How is Noah's ark a picture of Jesus? We have this great judgment of God in this great flood, but now there's a way of salvation. But there's a door I have to enter into. 
And, and so that's how we read the Bible, and that's how we read the Old Testament. That's precisely what Philip does with the Ethiopian eunuch. He uses the scripture to point him to Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we do with the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, New Testament, everything. So it's not about, you know, what mountain did Noah's Ark rest on, and can I go out and find it today? Um, no, the question is, how is Noah's Ark a picture to me of Jesus? Amen. And then the third thing is this. Read the Bible expecting God to speak to you. Because this is not an ordinary piece of literature. This is a supernatural book. The, the church historically has called this practice Lectio Divina, which is a fancy Latin term for spiritual reading. So what I do is, what I do with this is I slow down. I quiet my heart, I quiet my thoughts, I quiet my soul, and take one bite-sized passage of Scripture, maybe six to eight verses. And for those Six to eight verses, I just chew on it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, prayerfully. Now, this is a different way of reading the Bible than what I just described to you where you're reading the Bible to get it in your system. This is a different way of reading the Bible. It's not competing, it's complementary. But with this method of reading the Bible, I'm slowing down and I'm creating time and space and margin to hear from the Lord in Scripture. How many of you know Jesus wants to speak to you in the Scriptures? You can't make God speak to you that's not how it works. But you can slow down and quiet your heart enough to where if God does have a word to give you, now you're positioned to receive it. How many of you have had those times? I've had these times multiple times where I'm prayerfully reading a passage of Scripture and I may have read it a thousand times. And on the thousand and first time I read it, boom, something flies off the page. And now it's no longer a piece of literature that was written centuries ago. Now it's a fresh word for me today right now. So I would encourage us to have this practice where you just take one passage, one eight-verse eight passage, one little story, one little parable, and you chew on it, you meditate on it, you reflect on it like a cow chewing its cud over and over and over again. Soak in it, bathe in the scriptures, and you'll find over time, every so often, boy, something will fly off the page and God will speak to you. Something will resonate with you. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.